millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia. Because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and thanks for joining Democracy Sausage for what I'm sure you'll agree is another stimulating episode. Last week, New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian announced she was discontinuing her daily 11am pandemic press conferences, declaring she had other responsibilities to attend to. The reaction from journalists and some on social media has been ferocious, pointing out that New South Wales is just about to enter what might be the most critical phase of the pandemic with hospitals warning of a surge in patients, new infections still breaking records, and Ms Berejikli and herself about to commence a staged release of some lockdown restrictions. Naturally, there are suspicions that the Premier is simply ducking scrutiny, especially in relation to continuing anti-corruption commission interest in her relationship with disgraced former Liberal MP Daryl Maguire, a relationship that's now ended. Still, and leaving aside her terrible timing, The Premier has a prima facie case when she says the daily presses are time-consuming and she does have other responsibilities as Premier. So here's a suggestion which allows for ongoing scrutiny and accountability but would take nowhere near as long. Release the daily numbers via statements at, say, 10 o'clock and then hold a shorter press conference without all the turgid and repetitive preambles, all the repeated messages every day and the endless cast of speakers. Then go straight to media questions. In truth, the Premier doesn't need to be there while the Chief Medical Officer Kerry Chant and police officials and others do their explanations. So she can perhaps duck out of that part of it and maybe be in her office again by 11.30. Certainly beats getting rid of the press conferences altogether. Nonetheless, it does send a message about accountability. The Liberal Party's somewhat allergic reaction to media scrutiny seems to be cultural, perhaps driven by the top. It's arguable that Scott Morrison is the least instinctively transparent Prime Minister in this country's history. Well, someone who knows him better than most, albeit as his biographer, is former Press Gallery colleague and fellow Press Club board member Annika Smethurst. Her book, The Accidental Prime Minister, is to be released today. That's right, today. And this is one of her first interviews on it. Annika, welcome back to Democracy Sausage. Thanks for having me. You're in uh, covering state politics now in Victoria. Um, what did you think when you saw uh, that um, statement by Gladys Berejiklian that she was going to end those daily press conferences? I noticed that it was meant to end from yesterday, Monday, but she appeared at the very first press conference that she had announced she might not be at. Perhaps that was driven by the backlash, but uh, it's a different approach being taken in Victoria, isn't it? It is. Um, I sit somewhere in the middle. I know a lot of journalists think that by her not showing up every day, she's not showing accountability. Um, and I can see that. And especially when you've got a very obvious example of Daniel Andrews, who fronted more than 100 of these things last year. 
I do think um, whilst we have daily press conferences and obsess about the numbers, uh, the number of cases that is, not vaccines or people in hospital or people on ventilators, that we will never get over this as a society. I think there is an anxiety in the community, especially in Melbourne, which I've noticed since moving back, about the daily numbers. And I think a lot of that in part is driven by um, daily press conferences, which, you know, regular people never used to tune into. It's something that's that true, you, yes. you and I go to and uh, most of my friends and colleagues had no idea, you know, what time Daniel Andrews was up every day or anybody else. So I, I can see the logic there about it actually doing society some good, removing the focus. And I must admit, Daniel Andrews this year doesn't front them daily. There is one every day, but sometimes he sends out other people. I think her mistake was announcing it um, and Mm. suggesting that she decides when she answers questions (laughs) because, as we all know, she does work for us. Well, not me. I'm a Victorian, so I don't pay tax in her state, but she works for the people of New South Wales. And so I think the handling of it was almost worse. Like she needs to be accountable. They're having huge numbers there and, you know, in part because of policy decisions she has made. But I, I agree with you. They are a lengthy process it does take her away as she rightly said from doing um, other stuff she could maybe handle it better uh, release the data as you say early in the morning front the questions and then leave she doesn't have to be there which is what we're saying from Daniel Andrews he'll send out the chief health officer or Jerome Weimar or um, the health minister himself and not necessarily go to everybody every daily one and I think uh, if we're going to learn to live with COVID normal and eventually we're going to have to not get up and announce daily cases. And I'm hesitant to compare this to the flu. I understand the um, inconsistencies there, but I do remember working at the Sunday Tally back in 2017 when there was more than a 1,000 people one winter, many of them old in nursing homes who died of the flu, and there wasn't a daily press conference. In fact, most people didn't even care, and that's how it felt reporting on it. We reported on it regularly. Um, the Premier didn't get up and announce these. And I think um, it, it is feeding an anxiety in us that doesn't necessarily need to be there once we get vaccination numbers up. Yeah, that's true. But getting those vaccination numbers up is so critical. And of course, if we think about the comparison with the response to the flu, the policy response to the flu is, mm. has not been, you know, state border closures and mm. forced business lockdowns, you know, work at home, stay at home orders, all these kinds of things. So there's there's a whole lot of rights uh, that, that are associated with free liberal societies that have been suspended. There are a whole lot of policy calculations that are, you know, decisions that are based uh, on on the numbers. Uh, so there's definitely a need for accountability. Uh, and, and as you say, it's really about whether this needed to be articulated uh, so sort of bluntly in the way it was. It was almost like a thumb in the eye to those who are interested in finding out more and, and in holding the government to account. It had a little bit of the real Julia about it, actually, you know, that uh, that moment where Julia Gillard said, from now on, you're going to see the real Julia. It wasn't a bad idea for, for her advisers to um, sort of strip politics of the artifice and for Gillard to be a bit more natural and uh, direct in her communication. But it was the wrong idea to explain that that's what they were doing because, of course, it invited the immediate question, well, who have we had up until now? Um, and there's a little bit of that with uh, with this as well. As you say, Berejiklian could have scaled back her direct involvement, um, done so, uh, you know, from time to time. She also doesn't, doesn't need to run endless press conferences. You know, these that's the thing about the Andrews ones you mentioned and and Berejiklian's is that they they do drag on forever and they have become quite acrimonious at times. And I think that's interesting too because you make a really good point about ordinary people not being conversant with the way press conferences run, Mm. you know, the particular what you might call the kind of small p politic of the press conference, which is pretty abrasive, pretty assertive. It can at times uh, involve um, speaking very directly challenging what a political leader is saying, interrupting them and the like. And a lot of voters just find it really quite gauche and gross and and, and they're a bit appalled by journalists' behaviour. But it is really part of, you know, we call this democracy sausage. It is part of the democratic, you know, the inside of the sausage that uh, people are seeing and perhaps not finding all that appetising. So a lot of issues there really. 
Yeah, it's something I've reflected on um, a lot that it's how the sausage is made and it sits uncomfortably for people and overwhelmingly I think it sits uncomfortably for them depending on when they line up. You know, if you're a supporter of the more Labor side of politics, I think you're more likely to, you know, watch press conferences and think that when journalists ask questions they are attacking perhaps Daniel Andrews and then conversely when you watch a Scott Morrison press conference, why aren't the press going harder? Now, Mm. I've gone to press conferences for a long time and um, I see us as going pretty hard on everybody and it is a pretty hard thing. You know, I started as a press gallery reporter at a state level first um, when I was in my early 20s and you're standing there, you know, asking uh, seasoned politicians, often men, often with, you know, who have done it for a couple of decades and I'm sort of there on behalf of what I see as Victorians at that stage asking questions and it's combative and they all politicians of all sides use different tactics to try and belittle. Some of them use your name so the grab can't be used on television. That's a a, Mm. thing they Mm. do. Um, The whole thing is drama. They know the game, we know the game. Um, The problem is that the people that don't always know the game and I don't think there's any problem with that, it's not their profession and perhaps, um, you know, we've done a pretty bad job of explaining our role, you know, the people watching from home. And it can be uncomfortable, especially when somebody you support is what you see as being under attack. But I see it as, you know, a um, an important part of democracy. You know, yeah, you that's really right. need I mean, them to stand up there. They work for us and it might be uncomfortable, but the alternative is not having daily press conferences and nobody wants that. That's right. I mean, politicians, professional politicians go into those press conferences very often with a plan to get across one or two key messages and to give away as little direct information as possible on all other subjects. And our job, the, the journalist's job, is to uh, is to probe at those issues that the politicians perhaps don't see as in their immediate short-term interest in covering. It leads to these clashes. Now, look, we could talk about this all day, and it, it wasn't actually the, the reason that, uh, that I wanted to speak to you. <laughs> today uh, it just struck me as um, you know obviously a very topical thing topical in the in the function of democracy but also uh, from your position now having been in the in the in the state press gallery in the federal press gallery back in the state press gallery again now um, really interesting to see the comparisons with the way these things are playing out uh, and so I guess we'll we'll watch that and see whether Berejiklian perhaps does uh, attend more of these press conferences I suspect than she might have intended when she made that statement. We'll, we'll have to just wait and see on that. Now, let's get to the uh, subject that we uh, really wanted to talk about today, which is this book of yours, The Accidental Prime Minister. Congratulations on it. It really is a terrific read. And it fills in many of the blanks about a PM who I guess we really didn't know when he was installed by his colleagues in 2018 and then still didn't really know him when we, the electors, installed him as or reinstalled him really or, or confirmed him as Prime Minister in 2019 at the election. Perhaps then it was almost as the path of least resistance against, you know, Bill Shorten and a Labor manifesto that was large and unwieldy in which Morrison successfully, you know, raised concerns over. But what what made you decide, Annika, to to write this biography of Scott Morrison? Uh, really, in effect, he's still in the first term. Uh, as I say, he was, you know, he, mm. he got installed by his colleagues before the 2019 election. But this is first fully, fully fledged, properly elected term, and you've you, you've felt the need to write this biography. There's a few reasons that played into that. Um, practically, I, you know, uh, left my job in the press gallery midway through last year. I just needed a break after a pretty intense few years there, and within a couple of days, I was contacted by a publisher saying I'd be bored and I should perhaps consider a project. So that was the practical reason why I did it. Um, in terms of the topic, Scott Morrison, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. A lot of people who have been in the media, uh, in politics for a while, are really known knowns. Malcolm Turnbull, um, by the time he became prime minister was very much known to us as people. He was involved in the Republican bait. He was high profile. Um, His wife had a high profile career. So there wasn't, as much as there is a story to be told there about Malcolm Turnbull, he he was known to a lot of us. Um, Bill Shorten, similarly, he didn't become Prime Minister, but he had a platform um, when he was a union boss, obviously involved in the mine disaster in Tasmania. By comparison, Um, And I will say by comparison, because Scott Morrison did have some high profile roles, but he got them quite young and he 
launched into politics in 2007 and really rose quickly. You know, he um, he was in a high-profile opposition role with immigration very quickly after um, he was pre-selected and, and, and elected in Cook and then became a very high-profile minister and had a number of a series of high-profile ministerial roles. So we knew him in politics, but what got him there and what makes people tick, I, I'm, I've always been very interested in. I'd say that's why I went into journalism in the first place. So um, I didn't know heaps about him, really, more than, you know, what I'd seen in the public. And I guess I want to investigate, wanted to investigate, you know, how ambitious is he to become Prime Minister? You usually have to be pretty ambitious. But he doesn't come from what we'd seen previously with, say, the likes of an Abbott and a Turnbull who were, and Bob Hawke, who were road scholars, um, uh, very much from an academic um, top end of town, uh, especially with Malcolm Turnbull. We'd seen that with Kevin Rudd in terms of, you know, uh, well, his wife's business success, but he had had a, a pretty um, good career in terms of, you know, internationally. He spoke Chinese. He had these sort of things you'd expect from a, a world leader, whereas Scott Morrison is far more middle of the road, I'd say, you know, and yet had got to this position. And in many ways, you know, now he's going to be a longer serving prime minister than the two blokes before him in Abbott and Turnbull. So um, I was interested to see not only what got him there, but what drives him. Well, probably then the four PMs that preceded him, or, mm. or I mean, you know, then Gillard uh, and and Rudd as and well. Rudd, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yes, it's... Um, he does have the potential to emerge as as a new John Howard like figure, and and mm. those sorts of comparisons have been made, albeit somewhat quietly. Um, the, the comparisons are, are always imprecise, but uh, they've been made. Just before we get to all of that and uh, some of the specifics, is this an authorized biography or an unauthorized biography, or is it somewhere he, in between? Somewhere in between. He didn't commission it. Um, <laughs> in fact, when I started researching, I didn't tell him for a little while, um, but I was dobbed in by some of the people I contacted. Yes, that, uh, that, that happens. Which was inevitable, and it was a good way to see who was dobbing. Um, it didn't take long. He's quite a pragmatist, I'd say, uh, in his politics and, and other things. He didn't. Um, I know previous prime ministers have tried to stop such things and done interviews in newspapers. I think he realised that as prime minister there was going to be books written about him. So he let me interview him. Um, it was mainly about the first half of his life, I guess, filling in some of those blanks with the second half, um, the politics side. You know, he, he's been on the record a lot talking about that. I didn't think I was going to get much more um, and I, I was had good contacts within politics. So a lot of the, the interviews I got and the time I got with him was spent really talking about, I guess, the first half of his life that perhaps we didn't know as much about. Now, we'll come back to some of the specifics. His sacking from Tourism Australia before he went into Parliament, his somewhat unorthodox pre-selection in Cook, along with his conversion to Rugby League and to the Shire and to the Sharks. But first... Um, Early on in the biography, you uh, quote the Wall Street Journal columnist Peggy Noonan on Trump, and you talk about how she notes that Trump was almost completely unchanged by the by the pressure and the grandeur of office. I, I, I myself wrote similar things about Trump, um, but I was certainly making it as a very deep criticism. In my case, I was making the point that he seemed to learn nothing the entire time he was there. You know, he, he never grew in the job. But I think what Peggy Noonan is trying to say is something slightly different, which is that, you know, the, he, he's a, a fully formed character in, in, in as far as he wants to be and he wasn't seduced by by the, the sort of trappings of office. Uh, why did you feel the need to include that? What point are you making about Morrison in terms of Noonan's assessment of Trump? It was interesting. It was a, a quote actually that one of, I would say, Morrison's allies or friends brought up and was using in a positive way. And I I don't know where Peggy Noonan sat when she was speaking about Trump in that respect. I think it was somewhere in between. Yeah. We often think that, uh, you know, we associate, I guess, success with things that aren't Trump-like because what we've known about foreign leaders, are, 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 that they don't act like he does. Now, I sort of see that, you know, outsiders can disrupt it and it's not necessarily, you know, we should be open to the idea. I'm not uh, saying I supported Trump's ways at all, but uh, I, I sort of look at Morrison and 
do we want somebody, it made me think, do we want somebody that is changed and influenced by the role and, you know, feels the need to sort of promote this grandeur of office and things like this? Because I don't think he has. I think he, um, especially compared to Malcolm Turnbull, who really um, relished international engagements and, you know, knew Theresa May from Oxford and all these sort of things. Um, I went to a, a G20 and a G7 with um, Scott Morrison and he was pretty open about it not being where he wanted to be. He'd prefer to be doing politics at home. Now, some people will say, well, no, that's his role to go over there and advocate for Australia and, and things like this. I completely agree with that. But when you say, sorry to interrupt you there, but when you say he he was open about that, you mean on the record or off the record? On the record, I remember standing in the ballroom at um, the casino in Biarritz, and he said, "You know, these things aren't my thing. Um, I, I want to be back home in the Shire." And it's something he plays up. You know, we know he does that. He sort of goes, "I'm for I'm an Aussie first. I'm a Shire boy," um, and I think perhaps he can do that a little bit too much. The reason I asked that is because I was standing next to Julia Gillard in Brussels uh, shortly after she became Prime Minister. Uh, I think Emma Alberici was there as well. I think we may have been the only two reporters there. When she said on breakfast television, I, I sort of, you know, I was working in print at the time and had my little dictaphone there under her, you know, just out of shot. And she was making the point that she would rather be at the front of a classroom um, than. Uh, you know, at this at this NATO conference that was happening on Afghanistan, and she was roundly criticised for it. I, I suspect the reason I'm dwelling on this at the moment is because I hadn't actually known that Morrison had said that. It had it had eluded me that Morrison had made this point in Biarritz. But um, I know Gillard was was criticised because people started saying, "Oh, well, you know, if you don't want to be a world leader, you shouldn't have taken the job." But then, you know, it had a it had a quite stronger strong gendered element to it, that sort of criticism. And I'm interested mm. that Morrison could get away with saying that and no one raised, from what I can recall anyway, any great concerns about whether, you know, he was up to the job or not. Well, I remember writing about it at the time, but as you say, it didn't necessarily get um, big coverage. I think you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, if you – Kevin Rudd was – always criticised for swanning around at international events. And, and that was what Gillard was really, absolutely, I guess, that's sort of counterpointing. Was, yeah, yeah, and yes, it's important that we go to these things, but um, Scott Morrison's the ultimate politician and there is not a lot of votes in them. You know, um, he knows that. Uh, he's a pragmatist. And in terms of did he, you know, going back to that original, did has he grown in the role? Some of his friends will say he's changed, definitely. In fact, a lot of people will say he's actually um, got less of a glass jaw and um, is more open to compromise, which I actually think might be um, a corona factor there that he probably had to challenge his own thinkings about different things as it has done to lots of people, um, especially sort of, you know, ideological ideas. Um, but is it bad that he hasn't grown in the role? Yes and no. You know, you'd like to think that it does make you a broader thinker, a deeper thinker. Um, do I think in Australia we actually don't like leaders who are, um, we like to think they're like us and that's why you see them play it up. You know, Hawkey was a Rhodes Scholar but he didn't show a lot of it. He, he showed everyone remembers Hawkey for going to the cricket and having a, you know, a sculling competition. And um, Morrison doesn't have that sort of academic element, but he even if he did, I, I suspect he would hide it. You know, he hides a lot of um, the fact that he grew up in quite a well-to-do suburb and went to quite a good school because he it's maybe it's our tall poppy syndrome we have here, but I, I mm. think we don't actually like leaders that um, think to be better than us. You know, he plays up the daggy dad, the Tina Arena, the dad from the Shire, um, whereas I think by comparison if you look at, you know, Malcolm Turnbull being the most recent Prime Minister we had, uh, we know that he perhaps wasn't as comfortable, you know, at a Tina Arena concert. Um, that wasn't in his personality. And there's something about being authentic. I think it's really important. But also I think there's an intimidation that Australians feel um, and they don't like these sort of um, big global talk fests. They like to think, our, our, you know, any one of us could be Prime Minister and he's very good at that. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point because there's no direct votes in it. I agree, but there's an advantage of incumbency that comes to prime ministers that opposition leaders don't have, and it's one of the reasons why they start ahead on the preferred mm. prime minister scale is that they are actually looking the prime like minister. a prime minister. 
That's right, and 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 they attend these international conferences. Yes, it takes them out of the domestic fray, and in some cases that can be costly if there are political problems that need attending to, uh, and and if they are seen to be, as you say, sort of living, getting full of themselves, and uh, you know, strutting around like peacocks. But um, but at the same time, I think uh, you know it, it is part of the job, and it's interesting that it was it was kind of used to um, undermine Gillard at that moment, uh, you know. Sort of almost like seized upon by a number of critics, saying, "Oh, well, you know, she's not up to it." Um, Kevin Rudd was happy to travel; she's not, and travelling is part of the job. Yeah, really, quite uh, quite a few double standards yeah. there. Let's take a quick break and come back in a moment and continue talking about Scott Morrison. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, I mentioned, I sort of touched on this before, Annika, this idea of Morrison as a as the new John Howard or as some sort of, you know, a similar kind of figure in the sense. I wonder what your view is about this in as much as, as you were just saying before the break, he's, got, he's sort of cultivated this daggy dag dad persona Morrison that is you know the baseball caps and the embracing of the suburbs as a, a you know as his place where he feels home and so forth and like how it is kind of unfashionable mm. but also frequently underestimated by his competitors and his political opponents I wonder if you see parallels there I, th- I see incredible parallels I think some of it is the fact that uh, he is basing himself on Howard he was state director of the New South Wales Liberal Party when Howard was prime minister but I don't think that I think there are things about them that are similar. Um, you know, the Liberal Party is seen in Australia, I think it depends who you are, in two different ways. It's either seen as this sort of tough churning, top end of town, big business um, party, or it's seen as, you know, some would argue Menzies intended as, you know, a party for people that, you know, weren't unionised but were workers, middle Australians that, embraced freedoms and things like this. They're, yeah, they're the forgotten people. Yeah, they're yeah. very broad concepts, but I think, um, you know, that's overwhelmingly true. Scott Morrison, even when he was treasurer, was never a friend of big business in the same way that other Liberal treasurers has been. Um, he is more comfortable in suburban Australia. I think he performs better and genuinely I think that is more fitting with his lifestyle, the, the family he was raised in, the family he is raising than he is in, you know, um, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne or Sydney. Even though he, you know, he did grow up in Bronte, he doesn't have that eliteness that which people associate with the Liberal Party. And that, that's very similar to Howard. Um, interestingly, both of them, up until Howard, there was no Liberal Prime Ministers that had been in the public education system. Uh, Howard was the first and now Scott Morrison's the second. Now, when we talk public, they're both good public schools. We know that not all public schools are created equal. Um, Scott Morrison went to Sydney Boys High and that actually has produced a number of prime ministers and other well-known Australians. So it's not like he went to the local, you know, state school in a small country town. But I do think that's different from, you know, um, a long line of prime ministers and, and not just prime ministers, senior liberals that um, from sort of leafier suburbs that um, were members of the right clubs and went to the right universities. So I think that makes him a lot more uh, adaptable. He he speaks like an everyday bloke and in many ways, you know, that's exactly what Howard is. I think it's difficult as we talked about changing when you're in politics and 
when you've had good jobs for, you know, most of your life, which he has, even before entering politics and you're hanging out with a certain group of people, it can be easy to let that influence you. And I really don't think it has, which is a difficult thing to achieve, actually. Um, and Howard managed to do it. And as you talk about underestimating, I think that's really interesting. Because of this, people underestimate Scott Morrison and nobody did it more than Bill Shorten. Um, people did underestimate Howard. He went on to win, you know, he was there 11 years. He won four elections. Every time he went to an election, um, it, there was doubt about, you know, not only if he could remain leader of the Liberal Party but if he could hold on. And um, he also had a previous stint, you know, as, as um, leading the party. And he managed to come back. It, it was a little bit of an underdog thing. And I think Scott Morrison actually likes being underestimated for that very reason. Um, it's when he thrives, it's when people sort of belittle him that he um, he does achieve. And I think that's why, you know, I'm hesitant to make, even though he's trailing in the polls, a, a prediction about his election chances because I think uh, a lot of people like us who talk about politics, <laughs> perhaps overestimate his missteps, things that play well on Talkback or um, on Twitter, uh, in podcasts, uh, column inches are dedicated to some of the gaffes he's made. You know, a lot of them are ridiculous, the things he said when uh, trying to tackle the, the women's issue, for instance, uh, and you know, are pretty appalling. But I don't think come election time they shift too many votes and that's because a lot of the people that do get upset about it and talk about it probably weren't going to vote for him in the first place. Yeah, um, that's right. He knows what, um, you know, people go to the polls. He's very data-driven and I think when he goes to the polls he knows exactly how to harness these votes. Um, he doesn't get too upset about the little stories along the way that dominate news cycles that perhaps don't um, filter down into everyday Australians. And I think uh, he is underestimated and that there is an overestimation that his opponents and the opposition put on his um, gaffes and mistakes that really is unnecessary. Yeah, it's a very good point, I think. A correction really that needs to be made to a number number of people's frames of reference here when they're thinking about this. And if you think about, you know, the vaccination rollout and leaving aside the political negative of, of how badly it's been handled, just think about, how often we hear people uh, talking, experts talking about communities, sections of whole communities in our major cities and regions where the messages of uh, vaccination have just yet to penetrate. And it's a good indicator of how multi-layered and variable is the flow of information in the community. It's It might seem like it's obvious that, you know, how badly bungled the vaccination rollout has been mm. should be enough to end the prime minister's um, this prime minister's uh, time when the election comes. Uh, but in fact, people aren't following politics anywhere near as closely as the people who are covering politics and who are involved in it like to imagine. And uh, that you know, we we often see that come up. Morrison himself is, of course, quite socially conservative, deeply so in some ways. We know, for example, that he abstained on the same-sex marriage vote back in 2017, even though his electorate of Cook had voted, I think, 55-45 uh, in favour of the change. He's conservative. He's also pragmatic. Uh, and he's not a factional figure, is he? He's, he's not. He hasn't been a sort of a creature of the notorious Liberal Party groupings in New South Wales in particular. He's played them pretty well at various times. Uh, but but you make the point in the book, it's almost as if he's made the tabloid reading middle-class mums and dads his factional bosses, and he tries to please them first. It's a really, I mean, that goes to what you're just saying, I suppose. He's, he does have, like Howard, quite a good bead on what you might call a sort of understated majority current of opinion. I think that's correct. It's very rare, especially in the Labor Party, but also in the Liberal Party, to not have a faction. You need them to back you. You need them um, in different ballots along the way. When Scott Morrison first ran for Cook, he was considered a moderate. Now, a lot of people would scoff at that now, given, as you say, his same-sex marriage stance, also, um, I guess, his time in immigration and the fact he was a senior player in the Abbott government. And his, and his sort of religious focus Absolutely. so much, you know. Absolutely. But I think he definitely has shown that. He doesn't belong in the Conservatives, though, too. You talk to the New South Wales Conservatives, 
they don't see him as uh, somebody they, I guess, cling to. Now, some of that goes back to the fact he was um, state director when Malcolm Turnbull won Wentworth and they've still got a bit of, um, you know, uh, they're a little bit upset about his role he played in that. And as we know with factions, they're not always driven on ideology, ideology a lot of it's personality. Let's go back to that pre-selection uh, in Cook because that's something that uh, I, I think lots of people have heard about but that don't know the details of, and you give a very good account of it in the book, uh, explaining essentially what happened. Just to, just to sort of summarise it, Bruce Baird, the outgoing member, this is in 2007, uh, wants to leave Parliament in, in the seat of Cook. There's a there's a quite a strong cast of uh, of potential replacements, of which Morrison is one. Yet Morrison is knocked out in the first round. He gets eight votes, even though he's got the backing at that stage of John Howard, who at that stage is still the Prime Minister. He, he, yeah, he, had, he certainly had the backing of, of Howard, and I think he had the backing of Bruce Baird, the outgoing minister, uh, outgoing um, uh, member as he well. Did. And it kind of, as you point out, it led Albo to make Albanese to make the point that he ended up with more references than votes in that ballot. Yet somehow... <laughs> Somehow, after all of that, after getting knocked out early and everything else, he does end up being the endorsed candidate by the time the election is called. Yeah, it was an incredible time, actually. Um, a lot of politicians will say their, their pre-selection was bruising. A lot of them are. This one was a particularly bruising one. Look, there's often said in liberal circles, electors don't like being told what to do. Someone quipped to me that, you know, it's almost a, a kiss of death to have an endorsement um, by the Prime Minister at the time being John Howard, not because he wasn't popular, he was winning elections, but because branch members like to think for themselves. It's a very Liberal Party thing. And I would say as a very strong difference between the Labor Party, you often see that uh, votes in the Labor Party uh, seem worth, worthless by the time they get there because it's all been um, sorted before they go into the room. The Liberals have much more public clashes, um, no less bitter on either side. He did have the backing, as you say, of the local member and the Prime Minister. Now, that would usually be seen to be pretty good. Uh, it wasn't enough. And um, he initially, as you say, there was a, a sort of Melbourne Cup field worth of people in it including Paul Fletcher and Coleman, who both sit on, um, you know, his front bench now. Yeah. Which is interesting. He stood up against them. Um, Mark Speakman, too, is another one there. He's in the New South Wales government. Um, but ultimately he lost to a far more conservative candidate. Interestingly, now you'd think Morrison was the conservative candidate, but he he um, that was who he, he lost to overwhelmingly. Morrison actually went out in the first round and, and there was a, a series of other rounds before then. But then there was a little bit of an orchestrated campaign to uh, get rid of the endorsed candidate, should I say. So it was a, a Melbourne Cup field of candidates, um, including you know well-known people such as um, Coleman and Fletcher who sit on Morrison's front bench. But at the end of the day, it was Michael Toke that won. He was considered the Conservatives candidate. Uh, he was backed by the New South Wales right. So when we're talking about those sort of people, it's um, Conchetta for Avanti Wells, who still sits in Parliament. They were the sort of, I guess, faction pushing him. Shortly after he was endorsed, though, there were questions around it. Now, John Howard was asked the next day about it. He said he seems like a good young liberal, um, you know, an up-and-comer. He was from a Lebanese background, um, had had quite a good resume, and that you know, it all seemed okay. But within days, there started to be this campaign with the newspapers um, suggesting that perhaps he'd lied about some parts of his background, that he'd been a member of the Labor Party, which he hadn't hid, but the details of it, um, I guess the length of time he was there, um, there were some challenges about that. Um, I actually spoke to uh, Sam Dastiari about this, notable former Labor senator, who said he was contacted at the time by the Liberal Party after their pre-selection to really dig up some dirt on that about um, the, uh, Michael's labour connections and he was happy to provide it because he just wanted to, you know, create chaos um, ahead of a federal election. Ultimately this went on and on and on and it became a bit of a problem for Howard. Howard wasn't looking overwhelmingly confident going into that election and this was the last thing the party needed. Eventually, um, I guess, uh, the admin of the Liberal Party was asked to deal with this issue and it was a very tight vote, but they, they basically split and said, we, we can't endorse this candidate. It's taking up too much airtime. Um, it was thought to be uh, factional. There's no evidence that Scott Morrison was ringing around, dropping 
this dirt. Uh, there is evidence that New South Wales moderates were involved in this. Um, they were the people backing Morrison initially. Um, so there was another ballot. Um, another ballot was organised. They decided not to endorse uh, the originally elected, overwhelmingly elected uh, candidate that the people, the members of um, Cook put up. Um, by the time that second ballot came around, though, uh, a lot of the other candidates that I spoke about who were there in the first round did drop out. So it really almost was Morrison's to lose and he overwhelmingly won it. So um, he went from being the, the the guy that dropped out first round with just eight votes to overwhelmingly winning it. And, and key to that was the fact he got support from the New South Wales right. He was went in a moderate. Um, once they lost their candidate, there was a meeting held. He promised a few sort of staffing positions and, and, and gave some consideration to what the right wanted and uh, he had the backing from both sides then and walked away with it um, just ahead of the 2007 election. So he goes in as a into the process as a moderate, somehow emerges as the darling of the right um, yes. along with, um, along with some... <laughs> yeah, he's highly adaptable, as and we've sort of found that out because then he uh, wins the election. He wins the, uh, the the seat in the general election of two thousand and seven, the one in which John Howard lost and lost even lost his seat. Mm. Um, and we see in Morrison a transformation of the the man from from the inner east, uh, uh, leafy suburb of Bronte, to the uh, sort of southern fringe, uh, the Shire down near the Royal National Park there, um, and he becomes a. Uh, he goes from being a fan of rugby union to a fan of rugby league. He becomes a Sharks, tragic, as we know. And uh, the transformation of, um, of Scott Morrison um, is uh, is well and truly underway. Yeah, and I guess it, it's one of those things I don't know where I sit on this, you know, having researched it. You want your local MP to embrace their electorate. You know, we're currently having a debate about whether um, Christina Keneally should be parachuted into a seat she doesn't really have many connections to. So Scott Morrison can't be accused of that. You know, he did own a house in Bronte with his wife. They packed up, they rented a house in the Shire. He embraced the local footy team. Um, you know, he did become 100% Shire. And I think the way, the fact he was able to do that actually goes to the fact that it's not, it, it is a, a seat that fits his personality quite well. Um, mm. Higher rate, rate of Christian voters there. Um, he said, even though he grew up in Bronte, I, I do give him that, that Bronte was a different suburb that he grew up in that he is, than it is now. Um, and probably his family would have been at home growing up in the Shire um, when he was young, you know, if you can sort of make those comparisons over generations. But so I do think that um, it, the transition wasn't that hard. He um, embraced it with vigour. Uh, I guess what becomes problematic is we do crave authenticity in our politicians. Well, particularly and, when it comes to football teams. Yes, I think people, and there's a constant debate about AFL down here. He says he doesn't have a team despite some tweets over the time um, supporting the Western Bulldogs, which he might regret should they go on to win the grand final in a few weeks that he hasn't um, publicly stuck with them. But I did speak to Bruce Baird <laughs> and he was um, he was quite, I guess, uh, open about this. He said before he went, you know, became the local member because he obviously had stints in state and federal parliament. Before he became the local member for Cook, he actually wasn't that into the Sharks and he said he'd never seen Scott Morrison at Shark Park. Uh, and now we know that, of course, you know, that's so uh, such a sort of welded-on part of the Prime Minister's mm. personality. So um, is it good that he, he launched himself into the local team? And, and I guess it's fine, but if you... If you're going to pretend that um, it was always part of your personality, I think it's interesting because there, there was an interview I found he did in New Zealand when he was over there sort of saying that Sydney's a great place to live, um, but the one bad thing about it is we're not, they're not as into rugby union, which was, of course, his preferred sport back then um, that he, he now sort of distances himself from. Like, so like you say, he's... It becomes problematic. Yeah, like you say, he's quite adaptable. Mind you, Bruce Baird did go on to admit, I think, also that he's not been to a single game of league since leaving, no. as <laughs> you know, since, which is I like you know, his honesty. <laughs> Fifteen years ago, he, he was going to every game, and now he doesn't go to any. Uh, yeah. Hasn't been to one since. It's quite interesting. Uh, look, we're very close to being out of time, but I just wanted to. Uh, draw us back to, I suppose, a point I was making in the introduction about accountability because this is an Achilles heel, it seems. Whether it actually registers electorally 
you make the very good point earlier that uh, some of these stories, you know, perhaps won't. But if we think about, you know, his famous um, uh, formula of on water matters that he uh, yeah. he came up with when he was uh, immigration minister, so that he didn't have to discuss any of the details about Operation Sovereign Borders. We know about the Hawaii trip, which was which was done in secret and deliberately so, and then denied by members of his staff, and led to the famous "I don't hold a hose, mate" thing. There's the vaccination failure that we've seen, and 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 even now, you know, he he fudges with answers. You know, he was asked last week by Mark Raleigh, I think it was, you know, uh, when did you have meetings with Pfizer uh, in the second half of 2020? And he says, um, well. I would have been talking to them in the second half of 2020, which was, you know, mm. which was no answer at all because it was all about the date. The question was all about what date it was uh, in relation to when Pfizer was seeking those meetings. We've, of course, seen the uh, more recent um, uh, matter with the Father's Day trip, you know, where he goes back to Sydney and, you know, the sort of political judgment of that. He's obviously not happy about answering these sorts of questions. And the Brian Houston, you know, his, his pastor, uh, his, his involvement in supposedly his invitation or vetoed invitation mm. to the White House dinner in uh, uh, late 2019. Um, he He's fond of using things like, you know, the heroes of hindsight to sort of dismiss his critics as if, you know, um, there's an invalid, you know, it's invalid and sort of a low blow to be asking mm. him these questions. But is this his Achilles heel really that he just does not like scrutiny? I think so. I also think... It's something I've seen in a lot of politicians. And we we started this conversation talking about tricks politicians use in press conferences. Now, he may do it a lot, but I see a lot of politicians do it, uh, including Labor ones, where they say, well, this is something that only the Canberra Press Gallery cares about. This isn't what they're talking about out there. This is the bubble. Oh, well, you know, that may be important to you. I I can distinctly remember Daniel Andrews using a similar tactic recently saying, well, Mm. this is something that, you know, just you care about the public, don't they just want to get vaccinated and things like this. Um, It works really well. He may do it more than most politicians, I do think. Um, He does that when he's under pressure. He's also a confidence player. When Morrison's going well, he... um, he goes well, basically. He's like a footballer, you know, when he's kicking goals, he keeps kicking goals. When he has a misstep or a gaffe, he makes it worse for himself. Um, or he disappears. That. Or he disappears. And I think a lot of that comes down to uh, a little bit of arrogance mixed with, um, you know, he doesn't think he's wrong. And I, I asked a lot of his colleagues whether he's good at taking criticism and they say he'll hear it once and he'll consider it. But if he feels it's unfair, um, he does not respond well to that. Um, he thinks it's a pile on and he almost becomes, he gets his guard up and becomes aggressive. Now you can go home and kick the dog or whatever you do. I don't endorse that. I love dogs, but you know, you can, you can have these outlets privately, but when it starts to be seen in the public and he gets angry and he's actually, Labor said they thought this is how they had him early on. They were like, we knew that he had this glass jaw. And when he became prime minister, we thought we were just going to get him on that. And it didn't work. For the whole of that first election, he just, you know, didn't he didn't seem to care whatever they threw at him and it frustrated them. I wouldn't say that's always the case now. Um, you do see when he gets frustrated, you do see when he gets upset with criticism levelled at him and he does get his guard up and he responds. And individually, all those things you mentioned, I don't actually think people would affect his election chances. You know, silly things he said, the silly things he's done, the, the trip, to the Father's Day trip. I think it's collective when over it becomes a pattern of behaviour and we're getting to that point. There was a great quote one of his colleagues said to me um, about the women's issue and I find the women's issue interesting because he was actually somebody that supported the bonk ban. He's never had a reputation like many of his colleagues have of being a sort of party guy, you never see him at the pub, not a womaniser, any of those sort of, you know, bad traits we see from politicians he should have been able to moralise on a lot of these issues because he's actually, you know, married his high school sweetheart and these sort of things. He turned, it became a negative for him, which is interesting, and it was through a series of gaffes and he was unable to reset it. Now, one of his colleagues said to me at that time that they didn't, even though they were critical of his handling, they said, you know, it's like opinions are like wet cement. They mix around and they mix around and they mix around. Um but once they set against you, it's very hard to change them. And their point was that he was on the cusp of that happening. 
And I do tend to agree that individually these things don't matter and I do still maintain that his opponents overestimate his missteps. It's when collectively we start to see a, I don't hold the hose, mate, I didn't do this, I wasn't involved, I don't know about that, um, that it becomes problematic for him. And I think depending on when the election is, I still wouldn't put it past him that he could win, especially because as people who have been through quite a lot in the last two years as Australians, we try and put trauma behind us. Um, and a lot of politicians say this to me that, you know, come voting day, if we're all vaccinated and out in the open, we will forget about these times when a lot of us are trapped in our homes. We will want to. And he could almost spin it as, you know, a positive. And we know incumbents are overwhelmingly returned. So I don't think the missteps have collectively formed so strongly and that cement has set. But I do think it is his Achilles heel, as you say, and it could be his downfall. Mm. Annika, so much we could talk about here. Thank you so much. I, I very strongly encourage people to go out and get this book. It's a it's a terrific read. It fills in uh, a great many blanks, as I say, about about a man that uh, leads this country through a very difficult time. For whom there are you know obviously some very severe uh, criticism. A lot is not really known about him, and uh, you learn a great deal mm. from this book. So, congratulations on the accidental prime minister. It's available through Hachette. Well, I presume all good bookstores and all good probably bookstores even, and online, importantly, for no, everybody who's some in bad lockdown. Ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Terrific to talk to you again. That's it for Democracy Sausage for this week. Until next time. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker.